Collegian News Hour, the official podcast for the Collegian's news section. My name is Chris McLaughlin, and I'm one of the assistant news editors. The Massachusetts Daily Collegian is the only student-run print and online newspaper here on the UMass campus, serving this community since 1890. We're recording today's episode on Monday, February 15th, but this, like every installment of our podcast, will be released on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts a little later on. Joining me to recap the stories we've covered over the past few weeks are the rest of the news team, um, if you guys could all introduce yourselves. I'm Cassie McGrath, the news editor. I'm Claire Healy, assistant news editor. I'm Irina Kostakit, assistant news editor. I'm Sophia Gardner, assistant news editor. And I'm Will Catcher, an assistant news editor. So we are in week three of classes. Classes started about two weeks later than they normally would because the school was making efforts to reduce the spread of the coronavirus by having a start in February when we were supposed to be a little more out of cold and flu season. Unfortunately, the first week back, we saw the largest spike in cases that UMass has recorded to date. And we are now at two weeks later from the start date. So we are around 600 um, active cases or, or positive cases that have been recorded. And a lot of this actually stemmed from social gatherings among students who returned to the area. In particular, the fraternity Theta Chi received a lot of heat because of parties that they hosted at their fraternity house on campus. And there were videos that came out. It showed people gathered together, not social distancing, not wearing masks. And as a result, we saw a ton of new cases and a ton of new restrictions. So I kind of just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on how things have played out and what you think the situation is like right now. I, I can start a bit. Um, I don't even know where to start, <laughs> but um, kind of like what Chris said, the, um, the increase in cases or the outbreak was due to m- mostly social gatherings. The university has said, that um, you know, in-person classes do not cause these outbreaks, um, and also like further research shows that like when there are safe um, safety measures in like places of in-person employment, that also does not spread the virus. What does is um, when people don't follow COVID nineteen uh, like guidelines such as mask wearing or facial coverings and uh, social distancing. Um, so that's kind of what we saw with the fraternity parties at Theta Chi. Um, which I think Sophie would probably be the most qualified to talk about since she did that reporting. But um, from more research that we've done um, specifically in the series that we're working on called What Went Wrong, which Will and I are working on with a couple of our other writers, um, it wasn't just these parties, it was also a lack of following rules in the, um, the residence halls on campus. So students were supposed to get two negative tests in quarantine for four days and this was widely broken. And furthermore, there were um, parties in the dorms. We found out about pretty large gatherings going on. Um, And then in addition to that, um, students were largely, and and this doesn't apply to all students. Um, A lot of students were following the guidelines and therefore have frustration about those who didn't. They basically, they as in UMass basically put put the the role of policing the dorms in charge um, for RAs and RAs uh, residential assistants uh, were very much overwhelmed, understandably, by this. And I think in a lot of the cases, then um, students were kind of sneaking past their RAs or even like fighting them on being written up for breaking COVID guidelines. 
I said I didn't know where to start, and that's because there's so much to the situation, but I'll stop now and let other people jump in. Yeah, just to touch on the theta reporting, um, me and our managing editor, Matt Berg, spent about a week, I think. I think it came out the Saturday after we found out that the parties had happened. So um, we spent about a week confirming that the videos were taken that weekend and speaking to a lot of members of Greek life um, who had knowledge of the parties as well. But I do think it is important to note that it's very unlikely that Theta Chi was the only people holding parties, especially in Greek life. We did hear a lot of rumbling of other parties going on, especially within Greek life, but it wasn't something that we had the sources to confirm. We only had the sources to confirm that Theta happened. So. Um, yeah, I just think it's important to note that it wasn't just Theta Chi that is responsible for the spread of the virus. Also, as a result of the Theta Chi reporting, um, there was two petitions that went around. Um, one received, I think, a few thousand signatures um, asking for the university um, to like basically expel the chapter from campus. Um, currently, they're on interim suspension pending investigation. And um, I spoke to Sonia Epstein, the SGA president, and they um, said that the SGA will take, will consider taking further action depending on what the results of the investigation are um, within the limits that they can do so. So um, certainly Theta Chi um, is facing some consequences for their actions. Again, as Sophie said, uh, they're probably not the only uh, fraternity or the only people who had social gatherings outside of the rules and the guidelines that UMass had put out. But unfortunately, a lot of people, regardless of whether they were playing it safe or being reckless are now facing a lot of consequences from the fallout of the spiking cases. So it was last Sunday, not this past Sunday, but the Sunday before that UMass went from an elevated uh, risk level. And then two days later, they went to a high risk level. And so as a result, we've seen a lot of people have to face consequences for the, the decisions of others, basically. So a lot of people are now in the self-sequester period, um, as they're calling it, where we're only supposed to go out if we are going to get tested twice weekly, we're going to go see a doctor, or we're going to go and get some groceries at the store. And obviously, not everyone's following that to a T, but how has kind of this been affecting everybody in different ways? I know there's the off-campus jobs and people who need to work are now kind of not being allowed to, and there's other fallout from that. So if anyone wants to touch on that a little more. Yeah, I think the off-campus jobs is probably the most significant and impactful part of that. Um, and I can't speak as directly to that as other people can, um, but I thought what was really interesting was what was what spread the most was the walking policy. I mean, you saw that in the New York Times morning newsletter. You saw that in the Daily Mail from the from the UK. This was something that you know places across the country and across the world, from the Daily Collegian to the New York Times, looked at and said that is ridiculous. Like that policy is not going to solve anything. We know at this point, a year into the pandemic, that outdoor transmission is actually very low if people are relatively distanced and wearing masks. 
And uh, UMass held that policy out for a week while they got called on it and eventually relented it uh, or pulled it back. And I thought that was significant to see the school bend to the pressure of media and to also make a concerted, noticeable effort in the days after they took the policy back to visibly walk it back to, to say, I mean, we saw an email right after they walked it back from the Office of Off-Campus Student Life listing ways that you can safely exercise outdoors. They, there was a very clear cause and effect between UMass getting called on that policy and withdrawing it. So I thought that was really interesting uh, to see. I think one thing that has kind of stood out to me is the effects that people don't think about due to this outbreak. Um, so of course, there's so much importance to the rising case numbers and that will lead to hospitalizations and unfortunately even deaths across the Pioneer Valley. Um, because I think there's just a lot of confusion over how students make these decisions to go to a super spreader event or to socialize in a dangerous way after we're almost a year into the pandemic and people, there's kind of just like two sides to this right now. Um, and people are saying, well, if you're a freshman, you just want to have a normal college experience and you can justify it. And then it's really hard for people to understand on the other end, you know, how someone could go about making that decision. So, but there was a uh, letter to the editor published today in the Collegian from a um, Hadley resident who has two young children that are, aren't able to go to school now due to the increase in cases from UMass. Um, I interviewed a student yesterday who said, you know, an important factor of this is not everyone has a home life they're comfortable going back to um, if they are sent home from campus. And this isn't a situation where, you know, we're just here for a good time. There's students who are immunocompromised who are really scared right now. Um, and there are students who have planned their dissertations for how many years um, and aren't able to do that research right now. There's people, there are graduate students who are moved um, because they, um, because of their housing being turned into quarantine space. And there are people who are losing their jobs and losing a lot of money to be able to, you know, pay rent, buy groceries and just live their life. And I think those are really important to draw then more that I'm not listing, but these are important to draw attention to because individual actions do have greater results. And I think that education around how to have a safe bubble, the adverse effects based on socioeconomic status um, that the virus has or race that the virus has on different people are really important to educate students about so that they know really what decision they are making when they go to a dangerous environment um, and also making it something that is educational. But there's also a lot of frustration about sanctions and people are also very much calling on the university to take um, strong action against these students who cause the outbreak. Uh, another group that I think has been overlooked a little bit and that has definitely um, faced a lot of the brunt of these impacts are frontline workers at UMass because um, the administration puts in these policies, but the people who carry them out and kind of make the whole university run are a lot of these workers. Um, and so I've been working on a story about exactly this. It's going to be coming out later this week, but you know, something I've heard is that like the workers are kind of being forced to put themselves more at risk than they need to because of this um, irresponsible student behavior. Um, I had a lady who works at one of the dining halls tell me that, you know, every time she gets a negative test, it's like another sigh of relief because it's just so worrying. So um, there's so many other people at the university that we don't 
take into consideration. Yeah, absolutely. From the, I mean, from the RAs to the dining hall workers, so many of these people are, have their, the hand, their health in the hands of, of a lot of people who don't really have a regard for it. Something that was really interesting, I wanted to circle back to what Cassidy said about student, holding students accountable, because we learned from the UMass Student Media Relations Office that 350 students had been refer, referred to the Dean of Students for violating health guidelines. And a few days later, we learned that the vast majority of those people, I mean, all but maybe 15 of the cases were closed. Four students were suspended, about 10 were taken out of dorms, the rest, nothing. So I think something a lot of students are seeing when they look at the school and they look at how these incidents are being processed and the fact that most students are not going to be punished for this, they're disappointed in their school for that. Yeah. And I think when we're talking about punishing people for breaking COVID guidelines, it's kind of a complex issue as well, because we don't want to affect, you know, students' willingness to get tested or comply with contract contact tracing requirements. So I think probably that's something that the university considered when they decided, you know, not to reprimand a large portion of the students that they referred to the student code of conduct. But um, it is also difficult because then what does not reprimanding students mean for the university? And does that mean that students are just going to continue behaving the way that um, a portion of them have been behaving? So also, I think it's interesting to that point to note that the university can't really send students anywhere for the rest of the semester. You already invited all these students here. If they are to take any action that forces students to go somewhere else, to go back home, they're effectively going to be sped spreading coronavirus across the state or across the country. And I don't think that's something they'll do, but I don't know if they've considered that, if um, that's ever going to be considered, but they've taken this commitment and it backfired. Yeah, I actually spoke with UMass's media relations um, and they told me that they're really encouraging students not to leave campus, even though there is this you know, massive spread going on. And he, they're worried about spreading the coronavirus elsewhere, which is a big possibility if students you know, get scared and decide to go back to their hometowns. So I think that's something that students need to consider as well when deciding how to operate if you're living on campus and you don't wanna be there anymore. I'll also note when we're talking about the outside area in Amherst and beyond that I know that the town of Amherst extended their emergency health order saying that a lot of businesses have to close earlier, they have a lot more restrictions, and there's a fine in place for people who violate these restrictions. And it was supposed to end on February 8th and it's been extended kind of indefinitely. So the impact on local businesses is there as well. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, there's a lot of consequences that have resulted from just the student, more students being back and then students not necessarily following the rules. And I kind of wanted to get your guys' opinions because I know we said that 350 students face some sort of disciplinary action, whether it was up to suspension or if it was more of just like a slap on the wrist. But I was wondering if you guys think that maybe UMass itself is to blame in some sense for bringing back the number of students that it did 
um, considering that there's what, like five, 6,000 people living on campus now. And do you think that this sort of situation was almost inevitably gonna happen when you bring back that many people or could it have been avoided? I think one of the questions to ask in answering that question is what were they hoping would happen? Because I think one of the things I was going to mention before is for a lot of students who now they followed the guidelines and they didn't do anything, they're now in a kind of isolation. That's probably for many students very different from the kind of social interactions they gave up at home. You know, one way or the other, now they don't have any social interactions and they're effectively stuck in their dorm rooms. And with little ways of socializing with the people around them if they don't know the people around them already. So my point is with the university, what way were they trying to create an environment for these students to have a semester that is both safe, enjoyable, sociable, and you know better than having stayed at home? Because what they had in place last semester was housing for people who needed it, like housing for people who couldn't stay at home, couldn't go back to homes abroad, had extenuating circumstances. And then they opened it up to students who didn't fit those categories of needing that housing. So what were they hoping those students would get? I don't know. I'm not saying it was inevitable. I think there was decisions that were made, but I don't know why it was necessary, what they were hoping they would be providing to the students. I don't know. That's definitely the case. And I thought one of the best explanation, maybe not explanations, but assessments of it came from one student that said that UMass made a, a difficult or dangerous gamble on whether they could trust 18 and 19 year olds to follow these rules. A year into this pandemic, I'd like to think that we could trust people to know the rules, but we know that we can't. And UMass made a decision that it thought that it could handle what people were going to do on campus and thought that testing could could keep a, a view of where the of where COVID was on campus, and within about two three days of classes, proved that these that kids weren't going to listen, and that there is going to be enough kids, not all kids, but enough kids, ignoring rules that COVID would spread like wildfire. And the head of the RA union actually disagreed with the uh, the assessment of it being a gamble when I asked him about it. He said that he wouldn't call it a gamble; he would call it a calculation. UMass saw the data, they saw that they thought, and they thought that they could maintain control of it. And they said, you know what, we can try and manage this. And I think you can, people can judge for themselves whether they have managed it, but 700 people got COVID within two weeks of students arriving. Yeah, um, I have a couple of things to say going off of that. Um, the first thing is that it seems like there's some evidence of UMass being surprised or caught off guard, flat-footed, et cetera based on what happened. And we're seeing that right now in a reporting of how the state had to step in to help with contact tracing. Um, we're seeing that uh, for the the amount of buildings that UMass set aside, it was basically for worst case scenario. But I think that it wasn't something that they were necessarily expecting. They didn't have enough bins to move people. They didn't have enough transportation to move people. They didn't have necessarily enough they, I don't think they expected an outbreak like this to happen based on the response that we had to it. Like even students not being called in a timely manner that tested positive for um, the coronavirus and being moved out of their dorms is because they didn't have enough people to call. So I don't think 
there, there could possibly be some evidence in them being caught off guard. There's the conversation about splitting, like what the blame is here is one that I think is, it's, that's probably the most talked about thing right now, because in every conversation, it kind of leads there like, well, shouldn't you mass have been doing more or should, or should the, you know, the students are adults, shouldn't they have um, been more responsible? I think that this is a really difficult conversation. Um, there's some things that I think UMass could not have planned for, and that is students partying in quarantine. Um, I, that's something that we know is happening. And, you know, UMass should not expect their students to do something like that. I think that is absolutely shocking. And uh, I think that the response is kind of what we see a lot is students saying, well, there's no one watching me, so I can do whatever I want. Um, and, you know, UMass, there's a certain level of responsibility that I expect from any human being, and it is more than that, no matter their age. And I think that that's something that I hope is fair to say, like that if you are someone that is contact trace or you have the virus, you should not be partying and putting other people at risk. The last piece I'll mention is the finances are constantly being talked about here too. We know that in August, UMass said that uh, UMass Amherst specifically, because the UMass colleges the, had a deficit that was larger, but the UMass Amherst specifically had a $168.6 million budget deficit and $67.4 million of that was due to losses in housing and dining revenue. So there is a question here about money. How much money did they make coming back to camp? What did they make from these students coming back to campus? Those numbers are coming out and that's something that we will definitely be reporting on, but um, that's a that's a piece of this puzzle that needs to be answered. Um, and you know, money is important. We know that the school needs money to operate. Universities operate like businesses, even if they are public uh, institutions. And according to the SGA president, we know that UMass spent all of their CARES Act money. They got the first round. They have twenty eight million dollars. The second round of of stimulus and nine million of it has to go to student grants. Um, that now can include international students um, under the Biden administration, but they already spent all their stimulus money. Clearly, they they need money. I'm curious how much bringing students back played into it. In statements from the school that um, I believe Will received um, when asking questions, UMass, UMass seems, I, I would rather probably quote it, but UMass seemingly did not take as much blame um, they definitely said we expected more from the, the students. There isn't an apology in the statement that we got, not that we're saying that there should or shouldn't be, just making it clear that UMass has definitely not thus far said this is our fault. Um, we know that for to be true. Just to go off that quickly, I edited an article this week from McKenna and Lee, which talked about the $300 that was offered to off-campus students who had um, lost work time and income um, because of the restriction in the order to self-sequester. And the, the article talked about how there's a question over whether the university has enough money to offer $300 to all the students who are being impacted. So I didn't write it, so I can't speak too in depth to this article, but one of the quotes I believe um, was talking about a, the specific fund that this money is supposed to be drawn from, they believed was already emptied in some way, believed it was already used. Kind of to your point, Cassie, I know I'm being very inspecific, but um, the question was that there was enough, whether there was enough money for what they are now offering because they are still offering assistance for students.
also, I don't want this to get lost, but Cassie mentioned uh, a moment ago about UMass asking the state to step in on helping with co uh, contact tracing. And that's something that from the time we're recording, this is going to be posted uh, in about 12 hours, but nobody else has reported that yet. So um, I think Cassie was the first to hear that and it's going to be in our article in the morning. Um, so I won't, won't let her undersell that, but uh, that's, you know, that's only one thing that we're finding out and that will be released in the morning. The other is that there was just a major lack of contact tracers on UMass part, on UMass's part. They did not plan for this amount of cases. They weren't prepared for it. And we had students, uh, and you'll read more about this in the morning, who were in dorms three, four days while they knew they had COVID, while they had symptoms before UMass could get them out of there, which I think is a major piece of the puzzle is that being that UMass just did not have the capacity to get these kids out of the dorms fast, fast enough uh, where they couldn't, you know, uh, couldn't cause a problem. If you have someone who's positive for COVID living in their dorm, they have no choice but to use the bathroom. They're not going to go to the bathroom in their room. They, you know, nor should we expect ever expect that of them. They have to use the bathroom. They have to use the water fountains. And in some cases, students had people available who could get them food and others students didn't. And they had to go to the dining halls knowing that they were probably positive for COVID. Yeah. And I think that um, that speaks to that greater piece that I'm saying of just being caught flat-footed. Like UMass also put in a, a COVID-19 call, um, a call center because we heard from multiple students that were calling, emailing, doing everything they could to say, hey, I think I was in contact with someone who had COVID or I think I have COVID, like I need to get out of here and we're not getting responses. They were not getting food um, and they needed food and not getting responses. So UMass um, didn't have this call center and developed it in response. I think that is another big piece of like the re results of what's um, of the outbreak that UMass like had in place after um, that I think might say that they weren't necessarily expecting an outbreak this large. Yeah, certainly um, a lot of unintended consequences have come and kind of shaken up or shaken out as a result of the large spike in cases. I mean, like you said, just the not having enough contact tracers is definitely something that maybe could not have been foreseen or could have been. But with all these cases, it kind of just resulted in this situation where there wasn't, and it was kind of a catastrophe by the looks of it, and it missed the mark in a lot of places. Sorry, just to add one more thing. Um, I interviewed Sarah McKenna in the SGA and she said that in these conduct violations, um, that is all very private because each student is afforded the right to have basically have that information of their conduct violation just be private. So that's not something we get a lot of information about. And she also noted that in these punishments, the university largely took the approach of education and there's a specific title for that that I'm like forgetting, you can probably like you can find it online for the, the in our story about it. But basically, they took the educational approach, which Sarah McKenna said she agreed with, because there's some students that can have one conversation and never behave that way again. But then, of course, the fear is, well, who is hurt in the meantime? And also, is it enough? Is someone going to look at that as, oh, my gosh, like, I will never do something like this again. I, I now know the consequences of my actions and other people say, well, I, I got away with it and look at that as, as a slap on the wrist. And there's a lot of nuance to all these situations, but that is, um, I think, a piece of it that people want answers about punishments and sanctions, but we don't know if we'll ever really get those. 
Just to clarify what I said earlier about the um, funding for students who had lost income um, while self-sequestering, a press release from SGA and the Graduate Student Senate accused the university of having insufficient funds and not enough time to distribute it to students who are facing immediate consequences. Um, and they said it's coming from the UMass grant program and that the applicant, so the grant program does not have sufficient funds and that the um, application for other funds is not easily accessible. That's what the SGA and the Graduate Student Senate alleged and accused the university of. I also wanted to add, I referenced this a bit, but um, I said it quickly and I think that this is important to specifically highlight. There were five graduate students and some of them had families that were relocated as a result of um, the outbreak in cases um, that were living in Washington Tower and John Adams Tower in the Southwest residential area. And in that case, there's, I'm currently reporting on it and that story will be out Wednesday, but I think this is an important part because first they, they were moved at 50% capacity, 50% capacity in reference that there was still 50% of spaces available for people to quarantine or isolate in. Um, and they were basically given an option with less to stay and potentially put their families at risk of receiving the virus and living in positive, COVID positive buildings or in buildings where people were contact traced for the virus or to leave and move into the North apartments. So I interviewed one family that was displaced and they basically described that they had a home, they have children and older people in their family that are at an increased risk of the virus to their age. They called the the experience um, traumatic because they received a phone call and said they were given 24 hours. And by the time that one of the partner got home from work, it was only 18 hours to pack up all their things. And they had to spend extra money also to provide what they they needed there because they already had a whole home set up and that space is made for children. They have parking, they have a very established lifestyle that was um, displaced. So I think I think there is confusion, at least in interviews with um, members of the SGA in a statement from the Graduate Student Senate, that why weren't these graduate students told that their housing could be moved into quarantine housing before they made the decision to move in there? And why weren't they given more time? Potentially another example of how the university was caught off guard um, and students were moved in there. And basically the graduate students uh, will have the opportunity will be able to move back. They weren't permanently moved, but for at least two weeks. And we don't know if this uh, self-sequester will continue past um, Sunday, the 21st. So I think that, yeah, it's just important to highlight like the adverse effects for these, these people and these families. And just even like moving their kids in school, like moving all of their kids, like remote learning work as well. And that's some, there's so many pieces of that. Yeah, absolutely. There's just so many different little things that have resulted from just in a matter of two weeks, basically, just uprising cases. And then we see all these consequences and it's almost like a ripple effect. And I think we're going to keep continuing to see new details emerge, new um, consequences, results. We'll see if the self-sequester period ends on February 21st two weeks after it was first announced, or if UMass will have to extend it any further. But obviously we at the Collegian are gonna keep tabs on everything and we're gonna keep the community updated on any changes or any 
breaking news that comes out of all of this. But I think that's going to do it for us today. Thanks again for tuning in and join us next time. And once again, I'm Chris McLaughlin. I'm Cassie McGrath. I'm Claire Healy. I'm Irina Kostlake. I'm Sophia Gardner. And I'm Will Catcher. And you've been listening to the Collegian News Hour. The music for this podcast was created by Joaquin Carud and promoted by Audio Library. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us a rating if you enjoyed today's episode. It definitely helps us out. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.